Amen. Thank you, praise team. Appreciate you. Appreciate you for being here today. Hope everyone is doing well. I'm solo today. Corinda's in Arkansas at a wedding, and I'm all by myself. And I hate it. And, uh, and, and, and next weekend was supposed to be her last weekend working weekends at the hospital. Praise the Lord, she is off weekends. No more working weekends. And uh, so she'll be back with us. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go pick her up tonight after growth groups from Arkansas, but uh, she'll be back with us next Sunday, and hopefully no more working on Sundays. Isn't that great? Now, neither one of us has to work on Sundays, right? Because <laughs> preachers don't do nothing, you know. Hey, if you will, I'm just kidding, by the way. If you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 John in chapter 2, and that's where we're going to be picking back up in our current sermon series called True Salvation, a study of 1 John. And I know that last week it kind of did things differently. I hope that you were okay with that. Uh, it, it kind of just reminds me of what heaven's going to be like. Uh, people of all different skin tones, people of all different kind of languages are going to come together and worship the one and only God. So we kind of got a glimpse of that last week. I hope that you enjoyed that. I know that our Hispanic church really enjoyed being in here with us last week. But to refresh your memory on where we are and what we have been going through, let me just remind you that there are four unshakable pillars that support the doctrine of the assurance of salvation. And I know I don't always do doctrinal sermon series, but this is a very doctrinal sermon series. We're just learning about the doctrine of the assurance of salvation. The four uh, distinct and, and grounded pillars are this. Number one, God doesn't lie. You remember that? Uh, number two, Jesus died and rose again. Number three, the Holy Spirit resides in you. And then number four, a changed life. And we've been singing about that this morning. I think that's pretty amazing. As I've been reflecting over these last three weeks that we've been going through this sermon series, I began to realize that I think it is important for me to make the note that the doctrine of the assurance of salvation is not meant to make you question whether or not you are saved. That is not what the doctrine of the assurance of salvation is, but instead its purpose is to give you an opportunity to know that you know that you know that you are truly saved. You see, this doctrine is not one to be scared of, it's not one to be misunderstood, but this doctrine is completely for the benefit of the true believer. You know, there are times in every Christian's life where we will question, how do I know that I am really saved? But instead of living in confusion or uncertainty, I believe we can walk through these four pillars to be reminded that, yes, indeed, I really am saved. And I can know it, and I know it without a doubt. If we go through these four pillars, we can remember that, yes, God doesn't lie. We can remember and we can know in our hearts, and I mean really believe it, that Jesus came and He died and He rose again. Listen to me, if we are honest with ourselves... And it has to be honesty here. If you're honest with yourselves, we can know whether or not the Holy Spirit is really inside of us. And people can fake it till they make it, but they may not make it. You see, it really depends if it's in there or not. If the Holy Spirit resides in you, you're safe. If not, you need to work on that. And if we really are saved, then we will be able to see our lives be changed. As we are keeping God's commandments, namely that we love God and love others, as we saw the last time we were together. As today we're going to progress, uh, we're going to dive a little more into the social test, which I spoke to you last time. I called that the love factor in regards to loving God. 
And in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 2, John is very careful to identify who he is speaking to in the passage that we're going to be looking at together today. He's speaking here to Christians of all different levels of spiritual maturity. But people whose sins have been forgiven nonetheless. Therefore, as we are focusing on our main passage of Scripture for today, please keep that important note in mind. That John is writing to Christians. Who is John writing to? Christians, right? So keep that in mind. And he says here to us, moving into verses 15 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Amen? And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and now the preaching of his word. And, and I know that most of us have heard this passage of Scripture read or, or preached before, and I know that that may make it seem as if this passage is too elementary for those of us who are already Christians to spend our time thinking about this morning. But that's why I believe it's so important for us to remember who John is speaking to here. Who is John speaking to? Christians. Not just anybody. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to believers. Why? Here's why. Because it is useless to urge those who are still of the world to not love the world. That's a major contradiction. How can someone who is still of the world not love the world? That doesn't make any sense. Therefore, who is John speaking to? Christians. Believers. And I know that most of us have heard these verses before, but I truly believe that if we just read through these verses in our English language, we, we, we risk missing out on what John is truly trying to say here. For instance, uh, you've heard me say it before and you've heard others say it as well, in the Greek language there are several different words for love, right? And, and they all have this very specific meaning. You know, we, we toss words around like crazy and it really doesn't have much of a meaning to us sometimes. When the Greeks were speaking, especially when they were writing, the words they used had a very specific meaning. And that is what John is saying here. When he says the word love, the Greek word that he is using is the word agapete. And I won't quiz you at the end, so it's okay. Don't worry about that. But let me tell you what agapete specifically means. Agapete specifically means an indication of the direction of the will. In other words, it is an intelligent or a purposeful choice. This kind of love doesn't just happen naturally. You see, it is not some friendly affection. It is not natural, but it is the kind of love that you choose to have towards some person or something. That's what John is saying here. Do not love the world. He's saying do not make the choice to love the world. It's the same kind of love that Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus says there, But I tell you, love your enemies. And let me ask you this morning, do we naturally have a high level of affection for our enemies? No, of course not. 
But still, Jesus says here that we need to make that decision to love them, that we must choose to love our enemies. This word, agapete, is the same kind of love that Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, when he says, Husbands, listen husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Which reminds us that even though the world charges marriage with a very low level of commitment, to where it is completely acceptable and normal to fall in and out of love with your spouse, guess what? The Bible teaches something completely different. The Bible teaches that you have to make a choice that you must be intentional to continue loving the person who you are legally and spiritually one flesh with. So different from what the world teaches us. So as John uses the word here in the negative, agapete, he is warning all Christians to make sure that they are not intentionally making the decision to love the world. Why? Because if a Christian purposes it in their heart to love the world or to love the things in the world, he says here that means that the love of the Father is not in them. In other words, what this means is that they are literally choosing the world over choosing the Father. What exactly here is meant by the world, though? Uh, just like love has several different meanings, the word cosmos, which is the word for world in the Greek, has a variety of different meanings in the New Testament. For instance, it can mean the universe, like the cosmos, the, the order of all things in the galaxy. It can mean the earth, just our little planet here. Cosmos can refer to the human race, the people who fill the earth. It can refer specifically to the ungodly people who are far from God. And finally, in an ethical sense, cosmos can mean all that is opposed to Christ here on earth. And in this passage in 1 John chapter 2, John is referring to that last one. Here he is not saying that we can't love the physical creation that God has blessed us with. He is not saying that we shouldn't marvel at the mountains and gaze at the voluminous valleys here on planet Earth. He is not saying that we can't have an obsession with the vast oceans. But he is saying that there is a whole lot of evil and a lot of wickedness that runs rampant here in this world. And we should not choose to love these things because if we do, we are simultaneously choosing to not love God. And as true as that is, and as simple as that may seem for us to understand today, what John is saying is actually going even a step further. Because when he finishes up this clause by saying that the love of the Father is not in him, it relates back to John's gospel. We're reading 1 John here in one of his letters. But in his gospel, chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus says there, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and our home will be made with him. Remember, I shared that verse with you just a few weeks ago at the beginning of this series. So John is saying here, the one who loves the world is preventing, literally withholding, blocking out the Father from loving him and coming into his heart to stay, to live there, to make his humble abode. And that kind of sounds a little scary, what I just said to you, that, that we can literally prevent the love of God, doesn't it? Because then it almost begins to make us question 
the love of God entirely. But let me reinforce this idea this morning that, yes, God does love everyone. He really does. And He loves you. But God is not living in the heart of every person. Not because that's what He wants, but because not everyone truly loves the Father and accepts Him into their heart. Why? Because that place is already occupied. Occupancy level is one. And if there is anything else in there, God cannot make His home there. The Father's love is kept out. And what is sitting in His rightful place? Well, verse 16 goes on to further illuminate this subject. Jesus, or excuse me, John informs us here of everything that is in the world. It's amazing. There's a lot of things in the world, isn't there? But John goes ahead and, and tells us everything that's in the world, and he does it in just one verse. All of the things that go against Christ, all that is in the world, can be grouped into three categories. And they are all three, not of the Father, but are fully and completely of the world. And because these three things are commonly misunderstood and misused, man, I've heard them in some crazy sermons that are just really not the correct interpretation. I want to quickly today just explain to you what John is meaning by these three groups that he lists. The first of them, of course, is the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. And again, we've, we've heard these categories before. I want us to leave here today make sure that we know what John is really meaning when he says these things. The first is the lust of the flesh. And I believe that this one here is perhaps the most understood of the three. I think this is probably the easiest one for us because it's something that we all deal with physically. The, this category embraces all of the sinful desires that spring up from our flesh, from our depraved nature, which is seeking constant gratification. And we know the Bible tells us we've all sinned. I would hope that we would admit that today. And since we have all sinned, we all know what it is to choose the lust of the flesh. And I know that sometimes when we read this uh, phrase, the lust of the flesh, it, it carries with it a sexual connotation, doesn't it? This phrase, though, is inclusive of any and all sin, not just sexual sin. But this lust of the flesh, if it is really the sins that we are carrying out physically, that we are actually committing, well, it could include all kinds of things. The lust of the flesh is lying. It is committing adultery. It is gossiping. It is stealing. It is walking up and punching your brother in the face. It's all of these different sins that you are committing physically. Because the lust of the flesh is any and all sins that we are actually committing with our bodies. And so with that being said, it causes us to ask, then, what in the world is number two? If the lust of the flesh is all sin, then why is there the lust of the eyes? Point number two. Well, if the lust of the flesh refers to any and all sins that we actually commit physically, well, then the lust of the eyes includes the lusts or the sins that reach beyond what a person can actually commit. Again, like the first category, lust of the eyes also kind of has a sexual connotation with it. In fact, that's probably the first thought that we think of when we think of the lust of the eyes, and, and for good reason. In fact, Jesus gives us an example of the lust of the eyes in a sexual example in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. He says there, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, there's lust of the eyes, got that? 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And those are the words of Jesus. You see, a lot of times this passage in 1 John chapter 2 is preached to where really all of these things are completely focused on sexual sin. The, the lust of the flesh being when you actually commit sexual sin physically. The lust of the eyes being when you commit sexual sin through your eyes by looking at a woman or a man lustfully throughout the common activities of a day. Or maybe even it's through some fantasy land that is provided through pornography. That's what people are looking at when they see this passage. Oh, pastor, don't worry. Christians don't deal with that type of temptation or sin. Yeah, right. If that's true, I guess I'm not a Christian. And if you're honest with yourself today, neither are you. According to Covenant Eyes, which is a computer protection service for people who are struggling with pornography, they say that 50%, get this, 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women deal with guarding their eyes. Did you know that right now, the, the pornography industry profits more than the NFL, more than the NBA, more than the MLB, all combined. Isn't, isn't that amazing? That is what our world has been infiltrated with. This wonderful creation that started out in Eden really took a turn for the worst. And it affects Christians. Remember, Satan, our adversary, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And how can he devour us? Well, he's devouring a lot of people in this way. And so instead of trying to always push things like this under the rug and act like they don't exist, my question is, why doesn't the church do something about it? And I know I can't do anything about it in just one sermon, and, and I'm not just saying Southern Oaks, but I'm talking about the church, capital C. Because it's a problem, you know? But also, outside of that, we must realize that John is speaking of broader things than just sexual sin. And here's what I want you to hear today. One of Satan's goals is to train our eyes to continuously look for different things to keep the furnace of ungodly emotions and imaginations burning. Let me say that again so you really understand what I'm saying. Satan's goal, what he is out to do, is to train your eyes to continuously look for different things to keep the furnace of ungodly emotions and ungodly imaginations burning. By that I mean he is wishing for us to notice those big houses and those big piles of money. He wants us to see those nice cars and become fixated on these things to where we begin to covet our neighbor's possessions. Is that a physical sin? Is that the lust of the flesh? It doesn't always have to be, but it's the lust of the eyes. It's the sin that is taking place in, in our minds. It's the sin that we are just thinking constantly about committing. Even though we can't do it, we want to so bad. It's, it's that position that someone has that they're doing so successful in, but you think all the while that you deserve to be in that position instead of them. And although you may never steal the money or the car, 
Although you may never do something unethical to quickly reach that position that you desire, you're still lusting after those things. And when you're lusting after those things, that is sinful. It's a problem. It's not okay. And so with John thoroughly covering the sins that we physically commit, when he's covering the sins that we commit with our thoughts, my question is, what in the world could possibly be left for category number three? Because really, I'd rather him stop right there because my toes hurt. You know what I'm saying? If he could stop right there, I think he's covered enough and I have enough to work on today. But instead, he goes on to include the third category. And I want to spend a little time on this category here, number three, the pride of life. Because really, I believe that this one is the one that is most often misinterpreted and misunderstood. And again, we go back to the English language. We read here this word, uh, pride. Some of your Bibles are reading the word vainglory. And both of these words have the ability to convey the wrong idea. In the plainest way I know how, let me say that the pride of life is not just the sin of being prideful in a generic sense. Although that is the way that you'll hear this passage preached most of the time. The pride of life, just make sure you're not being prideful and you're okay. No, it goes deeper than that. The pride of life is this idea that you can decide and direct your life without God. That apart from His guidance, and apart from His good and perfect and acceptable will, you can determine what you will do, and what you're going to gain and achieve and enjoy. That is the pride of life. And really, this is a sin of magnificent proportions. We know that all sin is just whenever we go against the will of God, but here the pride of life is literally going against God Himself. And it is a terrible sin to commit. Yet quite possibly, it is one that we struggle with repeatedly throughout our lives. We struggle to give up the driver's seat. I don't know about you, but I was talking to Bill Polk the other day and Hope's been in driving school. I always wanted to drive. I've, all, I've always liked driving. You can ask uh, some of my friends who ride with me. Anywhere we go, I like to drive. And I've always been that way in Arkansas for some crazy reason. I guess we're idiots over there. I don't know. I, we can get our permits. <laughs> yeah. We can get our permits at the age of 14. Did you know that? Mike, did you get your permit at 14? Man. 14, my birthday, I went to the driving test, took my test, and I drove home from the driver's place. I was ready to drive, man. Don't tell anybody, but my parents bought me a truck before my 16th birthday, and I drove it back and forth to church. Don't tell anybody. I broke the law. I've just always driven. I like to be in control. I don't know if you guys have noticed that or not. OCD, whatever you want to call it, I I got it, you know. But in our lives, it's the same way. And maybe it's not physically driving for you, but I, I think that most of us like to be in charge of our lives. And we have a problem giving up the driver's seat. We have a problem taking our hands off the wheel and giving God complete control to do with us whatever He desires. It's scary. It's out of our control. We don't want to do that. You see, all three of these groups that I've just described to you are not the reason that a person doesn't love God. 
They in and of themselves are not the reason a person doesn't love God. But these three things are the reason why the Father's love with all of its gifts cannot come into their hearts. They may want to love God. But while those things are still in their heart, the love of the Father is not in them. And so when we stop fighting against the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, if we ever get to the point where we just accept those things in our life, it's going to be there. Well, it shows that we have made the deliberate decision to love the things of the world instead of loving God. But if only we can step back and see the truth of what John is saying to us in verse 17. Then I believe we will also realize the futility of all these three categories. Of all the things that the world is offering to us. He says here in verse 17, And the world is passing away. And the lust of it. The world is passing away. And the lust of it. Let me ask you very honestly this morning. Would you ever dream of putting money in a bank today that you know is going to close its doors tomorrow? No. Would you do that, Bill? No. Let me ask you, would you decide to build your house on a piece of property that you know is unstable? No. Then why would we ever think it wise to invest in the things of the world when we know this ship is sinking? It's going down and down and down more and more every day. Why would we do that? I'm going to ask myself all the time. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. And, And we do it, but then we turn around and say, why did I do that? Especially when we're being offered the opposite. The world is passing away and the lust of it. But verse 17b John says this, But he who does the will of God abides forever. And to do the will of God is the opposite of all three of these categories of sin. Especially the third, the pride of life. If you're doing the will of the Father, you're not doing the will of you. And so to do the will of a Father and to go against the sinful nature of man and to try to distance ourselves from those things and fight against them instead of accepting them. That is what we need to be doing. That is when we are doing the will of the Father. Here's the interesting thing. Because of our sinful nature, we do have a natural affection to the things of the world. We really do. There there is this magnet pulling us that way. But as often as people try to use that as an excuse, let me say that there is a deeper and a stronger natural love for the things of God. Why? Because God is our creator. God made us in His image. And whether you want it or not, there's always going to be a connection between us and our creator. But just because that connection is there, there is still a step that we must take to choose Him over the world. Remember here, what type of love is John describing to the Christians in this passage? Is it a willy-nilly love? One that just happens by accident? No. Agapete. 
involves intelligence. It involves a purposeful choice. It doesn't happen by mistake. And that's why this warning is so important for John's audience. And who is John writing to? Christians. John's warning to Christians is this. We must choose one. And we will choose one. The question is, which one will you choose? Would you bow your heads with me today? I I just want to talk to you for a second. Let's get rid of all the distractions for just a moment. And let me ask you, what are you struggling with today? The lust of the flesh? The lust of the eyes? The pride of life? You see, both John and I are not preaching the idea that we can choose to love God and never deal with sin again. But I do believe that the words of Martin Luther are correct in saying, to be in the world, to see the world, to feel the world, is a different thing from loving the world. Just as to have and to feel sin is a different thing from loving sin. And so only you can answer my question this morning. Do you love sin? Or do you love God? And please don't just answer that question quickly without looking at the evidence that your life is producing. Because the proof's in the pudding. I'm not asking you today, do you want to love sin? Or do you want to love God? But I'm asking about the current condition of your heart. Deeper than that, I'm asking that if today were your last, if today were the end of the line for you here on earth, where would you spend eternity? I'm asking you today, is the love of God dwelling inside of you this morning? God, I love you. And I'm asking that you would speak to the innermost depths of our hearts today. To help us realize the two options that are being presented. And would you help us to truthfully answer that question of whether we love sin or whether we love you. God, I know that there are those in this room today who are dealing with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And God, they need you to help them overcome these traps of the devil. God, so that they can turn towards you, that they can take their hands off the wheel. And live completely for you. I know full and well that true salvation is the only thing that can free us from ourselves. It is the only thing that can free us from this life. So that we can live forever. So my prayer, Father, is that true salvation would be found amongst your people today. We give you this time. We ask that your Holy Spirit would come amongst us and make it beneficial. And we ask it in your name. Amen.